You may be seated. It is a joy and privilege for me again to welcome our brother Ben Shear to come bring the word of God to us from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Brother. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good to have you. Well, if you would take up your Bibles or your bulletin or both, I guess, we're going to look at and read 2 Thessalonians, all of chapter 1. If you're finding it in your Bible, it's in the T section. All the, bi- all the books in the New Testament are conveniently, they begin with T, are conveniently grouped together. But hear the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we come to you this morning, and as we come to your word, we, we ask that it would do what it always does, Father, which is it penetrates deeply into our hearts. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is our only rule for faith and practice. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, that we would see you clearly, and we would respond to your truth with faith and repentance pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's pretty easy to be patient when there's no line or when the road is empty of cars. It's fairly easy to love someone who is kind and nice to you. It's not remarkable to have peace when everything is going smoothly. It's easy to have self-control when you already have everything you want or to be charitable when you have plenty. The challenge comes when the conditions change. It's in the furnace of affliction where our true character and spirit is revealed. It's in the midst of a storm where our objects of trust are displayed for the world to see. And it's in times of sorrow where we learn our true sources of comfort and joy. It's precisely this theme which causes Paul to pick up his pen and write to the church in Thessalonica. You might remember that Thessalonica is is a large port city and at the time, it's the capital of Macedonia. This is probably why Paul and his second missionary journey came to this city with Silas and Timothy in tow. And if you look at Acts 17 and kind of the history of Paul's journeys, 
we, we learn that when Paul came to this town of Thessalonica, he did his usual. He went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews from Scripture, and he preached the gospel to all, Jews and Greeks alike. Scripture tells us that his preaching was met with some success, and there were converts out of some of the Jews and, quote, a large number of devout Greeks. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this section, tells us that the chief success of the mission clearly lay among the Greeks who had attached themselves to the synagogue. These people were dissatisfied with the low standards of pagan morality and with the idols worship that fostered them, and they were attracted by the monotheism and the lofty moralism of Judaism, but they were repelled by its nationalism and ritual requirements. But in, in Christianity, in the gospel that Paul preached, they found a faith dissatisfied, a faith that made sense on all their fronts. But these are also not a refined people. These aren't the ones, you know, sipping martinis on the top of a rooftop bar. In fact, Acts 17.10 tells us that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Uh, They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. The Bereans did. But the Thessalonians were just kind of average people, port city people, working class people. But it turns out the nobility these Bereans had is of less value than the faith of the Thessalonians. If you know your New Testament history, you know there never is a mention of a church in Berea, but there is a church in Thessalonica. And Paul is writing to them because something has gone wrong. Their faith is now causing them difficulty. They have gone through some serious trials, and they're unsure of what to do. This letter, which is, again, 2 Thessalonians, was likely written just a few short weeks after the first letter. We don't know exactly the dates, but most scholars think it's pretty close. Paul wrote it when he was likely in Corinth. He wrote his first letter to these people because he heard a report that the church was shaken, that people were doubting their faith due to recent deaths, and and they were confused about what the Christian life was supposed to look like and what hope they had in the face of death. I mean, we live 2,000 years worth of church history and theologians and pastors and ministers and the Holy Spirit shaping our thought about who God is. But back then, it was just unknown. So many things, and they were shaken. And Paul wrote his first letter to them to assure them of that. And here at the beginning of this second letter to this church, he writes to encourage them and strengthen them. Now, Paul's letter isn't a sermon or a theological letter. It's a man writing to a group of people who are facing very real challenges. And so as any good Presbyterian minister, I'm going to give you a sermon in three points because I I didn't have anything more creative today, but it will work. So let me give you the first point, and we'll find this in verse 3 and 4. And this is really kind of an outline point. We'll get to the meat of it in a second. But Paul gives, he gives thanks. After his introduction in verse 3 and 4, point 1, Paul gives thanks. In verse 3, he writes that he ought to always give thanks to God for them. He he means he's under obligation to give thanks, like it's a duty. And the phrase, as is right, conveys the idea that it's simply what they deserve for their actions, no more and no less. Now, I, I get the idea that he's starting off this letter with such a strong statement of personal thanks because they may have dismissed his thanks. Has anybody ever told you, you know, or praised you, and you're kind of like, oh, stop, that's too much, you know. Sometimes we don't like that praise. It highlights us, at least some of us, of that type of character. I get the idea that they had written back to Paul and kind of downplayed, you know, the tune he was saying of them. But in his first letter, he wrote this. He wrote, 
we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He had high praise for them. So it's likely they wrote back and downplayed it. And here in a second letter, he starts it off and he says, no, no, I give thanks for you guys. It, I'm obligated to do it. It is truly only the right thing. So what's he thankful for? I mean, Paul's a busy man. He has missionary journeys. He's got churches in multiple places, Presbyterian meetings to go to, all sorts of things, elders, session meetings. Why is he thankful? What makes a man like Paul really toot the horn of these people constantly over and over? What does he see in them and in their conduct that makes him say, yes, this is right, this is good, this is the way it's supposed to be? Well, verse 3 gives us two reasons. Take a look. First, because your faith is growing abundantly. Now that phrase, growing abundantly, is actually only used in the New Testament in this one spot. It's a unique phrase. And it means growing beyond expectations, flourishing, growing wonderfully. Leon Morris, again in his commentary, he says that this verb is used strictly for organic growth, like plants. Many of you, if you're like me, have planted tomatoes recently, right? Shake your head and please nod if you have some people. Okay. You know the moment happens when you get some water. They, they finally start getting that sun, that kind of summer-like sun, maybe a little fertilizer, the conditions are right, the roots set, and that plant just takes off, and you can almost see it grow and flourish right before your very eyes, day by day. And if you're like me, you check your plants multiple times a day, because why not? <laughs> and that's what's happening here. Their faith is growing abundantly. It's taken off beyond all expectations, Surprised, no matter what the circumstances are, even with their difficult circumstances, it seems to be the right conditions for faith to flourish. And he gives thanks for that. The second reason he gives thanks is the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, that's a very wordy sentence, and it's a perfectly acceptable translation from the Greek to the English, and it's accurate. But it's also boring. He just says your love is increasing. We have a tendency to read that and just kind of like, you know, just kind of read it. It's like Christianese almost. But again, this is where the original language helps us greatly because when Paul says increasing, the verb has the idea of wide dispersal, increasing, abounding, extending to the point where there's more than is needed. Like you're trying to gather it up and there's so much you can't even hold on to it all. It's like a raging river overflowing its banks, spreading, dispersing, covering, extending over everything more than you could possibly need. That's what their love is doing. Their love isn't just kind of there. It is just bursting at the seams. Interestingly enough, this is precisely what Paul had prayed for these people. Back to 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he wrote, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Prayer was answered. Paul's giving thanks because he says, Praise God, I prayed for this, and it is, God is doing this work among you. I give thanks, and it is only right. In fact, if I don't give thanks, I'm doing wrong. These people have a faith that is growing like weeds and love for one another that has permeated every aspect of their life and community. And Paul goes around boasting about them because they're oozing faith and love even though they're facing persecutions and afflictions. He's thankful that they're acting like Christians. They're flourishing even though afflictions and persecutions abound. Now, you probably know this, but persecutions and afflictions are not the same thing. They're, 
They're similar, but they're, they're different. There's really three ways a Christian's life can be hard. I was thinking about this this week. I'll, I'll, let me tell you what they are, okay? Number one, sometimes your life is hard because we live in a sinful world and things just don't go right. And it's just every aspect of creation is stained by the fall and things just don't, there's weeds in the garden. Uh, this could be as simple as a flat tire on the road or as complex as a failed marriage. We live in a fallen world. Number two, sometimes life is hard because we're dumb and we make bad decisions. That's also true. I'm not going to give you any examples of this because we have plenty around us all the time. But sometimes we just make bad decisions. And number three, sometimes life is hard because people don't like your king if you're a Christian. These are persecutions. They are attacks on you as a Christian specifically because of your profession of faith in Jesus. And what Paul is writing about here is really number one, and number three, he's talking about the afflictions and the difficulties that we just experience by living in life in a world. And those aren't unique to Christians. They're, everybody faces those. In fact, we'd like to hope that we are immune to them, but we're not. But also the persecutions that come because we do confess faith in Jesus. He's writing about these hardships. And you see, the natural response to persecutions and afflictions is retreat. Mentally and emotionally, this looks like despair or cynicism, or doubt. And that's how most people, even Christians, respond. Most people are like Job's wife when Job's world fell apart. Do you remember what Job's wife said to him when he lost everything and his world fell apart? Curse God and die. That was her advice to Job. That's the world's approach to suffering. You see, afflictions and persecutions, they feel like evidence that God is not around or that he doesn't care or that this thing we call faith is worthless. Persecutions and trials seem to deny rather than prove that God's judgment is right, that he's good, that he exists, and that he cares. And Paul writes here that they are enduring, present tense, they are currently enduring persecutions and afflictions. And this is why he's writing. This is why he writes the second letter, again, likely just weeks after his first. He probably got a report of what they were facing, and he says, i got to take up this pen right now to address this because they are going through a difficult time. He cares for them, he's thankful for them, and he wants to protect the faith and love they have, and it might be in danger of disappearing. So point number two, the purpose of persecutions and afflictions. We'll look at verses 5 through 10, shifting gears here a little bit. Again, kind of an outline. The purpose of persecutions and afflictions. Persecutions and trials, as it says in verse 5, are evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Their unflinching attitude in the midst of this suffering is, as Kistemacher says in his commentary, proof positive of God's righteous judgment. God rewards them with the ability to respond with faith and love, even as they're being persecuted and suffering. You know, the Thessalonians were likely surprised to face trials. That may seem strange to us. Uh, but many of them had, had, were so expecting Jesus to return at any moment that they had stopped working. They're sitting at home saying, he's coming back. Let's just hang out. Paul had to remind them a little bit later, no, you still got to work. We don't know when he's coming back. In fact, many of them thought that because they were facing persecutions and trials, they had missed the second coming. Again, if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he starts off the very next chapter saying, you haven't missed it. He hasn't come yet. 
he had to reassure them that they hadn't missed it. And here, here he essentially assures them that persecutions, they're the norm, not the exception for believers. You know, I always find it strange that Christians are surprised when people hate you for your faith. I'm su- I find it strange that Christians, that's us by the way, that we, we act surprised when the world doesn't like us. There's a lot of Christians really engaged right now in trying to win back Christian favoritism with our culture and our political system. And, you know, there's some value to that, and that's not really something I want to get into. But those people are almost just surprised that the, the tables have turned on us. When the reality is, that's the expectation and the norm for us. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven six. He said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Blessed, favored by God, are you if you're not offended by the person of Jesus. He expected people to be offended by him. Jesus didn't, you know, have any illusion that people were going to accept him and, and, and welcome him as their king. He knew the rejection was coming. You see, most people are offended by Christ. We should be surprised when somebody is not offended or take offense at Jesus. I must also say, you should be concerned if you don't face any persecutions as a Christian. It's, it's an interesting thing to say in a sermon. But if you don't face any persecutions in your life at all, that might be a reason. Persecutions are proof that a Christian is living a value system different from the dominant culture. You see, it's a testimony to the genuineness of your faith. People don't suffer when they look like the world. People are not persecuted when they smell like the culture, when their life, their creed, their purpose, everything of their life, every aspect and every aspect and venue of their life looks the same as everyone else. Truly, we should worry if we don't face any persecutions. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think we need to leave here seeking them out. We don't need to do, you know, dumb acts just to be persecuted. If God has granted us a measure of relief now, then we praise him and we trust him, and that's a great thing. But Scripture is just crystal clear that persecutions and facing them is synonymous with the Christian life. Let me give you just a couple examples. There are, there are many I could quote from, but I just want to give you, you know, a, a shotgun scatter blast so you hear what Scripture says. John 15, 20. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they, they did persecute Jesus, by the way. 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter four twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And finally, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount. You know what's fascinating is that Paul doesn't offer them relief from suffering. He offers purpose. Purpose for the suffering. He offers encouragement that their, their ability to bear fruit while they suffer is evidence of God's goodness and righteousness. You know, we live in a society that's obsessed with relief from suffering, a society that is very obsessed with, in some ways, understanding the reason for suffering. And this is probably true for people under, say, you know, age 35. And if you're older than me, you know who you are. Uh, You may not know this. And if you're younger than me, you also know who you are. You probably do know this. But young Americans don't really have a stigma associated with seeking mental health care. I'm giving an example. The social media app TikTok, uh, the hashtag mental health, it has been searched more than 67 billion times. 
That's a lot. That's a B billion, 67 billion times. This phenomenon is often referred to as social media therapy. So young Americans are quick to associate the troubles they experience in life with mental health diagnosis. It's now considered trendy, actually, to identify with a mental health disorder. And for many, it's considered a personality trait rather than something from which they want to be healed. Mental health is a popular way to make sense of the difficulties of life for young Americans. It provides answers and potentially a solution for why life is hard and why a person suffers and a possible way to stop the suffering. In this way, it's become a main feature of of the secular worldview of millennials and Gen Z. You know, but Paul doesn't, he doesn't provide a path to relief from suffering. The world, the world can't provide a purpose either. The world provides a reason. It may say you have this diagnosis. That's a reason you suffer. But it can never tell you the why. You know, the world can tell you how this flower was made. You know, science can tell us the cells and how it functions, but it can't tell us why it exists. There's a big difference there. And so, too, the Christianity, our worldview from Scripture, we can tell you the reasons people suffer. I already told you the three basic ones for a Christian, but not the purpose for which we suffer. And Paul here, in his attempt to encourage and reassure these fragile people undergoing persecutions, focuses attention on the purpose. The purpose is that it is part of God's righteous judgment to bring and use tribulations to his own people, you and me, to help bring us to perfection. God uses persecutions and tribulations to bring his own people to perfection. That's the purpose, at least one of the purposes. In fact, the construction of the original language in verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's the purpose he gives. You may be considered worthy. That phrase, if you're into grammar, it's a preposition with an infinitive which expresses purpose. The purpose they're facing these trials and afflictions is that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. They don't suffer to gain the kingdom, but they suffer for the kingdom. Again, that word may be considered worthy, that phrase may be considered worthy. In the original language, it's one single word, and it's not a legal word like justification. It's not like a salvation-type word. It's more like deemed or proved or shown. It shows that you're worthy. It, it proves the reality that already exists by your faith in Christ. It's showing the world that you are God's, that he is at work in your life, and when and if you respond to persecutions and afflictions with grace and love and steadfastness, that is nothing short of the supernatural work of the Spirit in your life. There's a purpose for these things when they happen to you. I dare say even that the persecutions and trials in your life give rise to the occasion for steadfastness and faith to grow and reveal themselves. Without such afflictions, those good works may never have been revealed. I think you know this too. I know many people have thought this before, but most Christians are afraid to pray for patience, right? Because we are afraid if we ask God to give us patience, he will give us occasions to exercise that muscle. We know that is true. But that's the point. The difficulties and the afflictions we sometimes face, they have a purpose. It is good and it's from God's hands. And I love the quote by Tim Keller. He says this, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, but by his grace he does not leave us as we are. 
Even these afflictions and persecutions are part of God's purpose in our life to not leave us as we are, but to change us day by day and make us worthy of his kingdom. They refine us, they mold us, and they shape us. Now, this doesn't make our suffering any less real or any easier. But knowing that they are part of God's righteous purpose in your life and that God's purpose is good and right should bring us comfort. It should bring us the ability to hold fast and endure to the end. You know, if you're suffering or being persecuted, or when you suffer, or when you're persecuted, the gospel does not offer you immediate relief. And anybody who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something, but it offers purpose and comfort and the certain hope that God is with you. You know, there is a flip side to this coin, though, and this is actually where Paul turns his attention next. In the same way that the persecutions have a purpose in, in the life of a believer, so too, so too is there a purpose in the life of the one who persecutes. You see, it is righteous and just for God to grant relief to those who are persecuted, and it is also righteous and just for God to repay those who cause the suffering. Again, notice verses 6 through 10. He spends a very large amount of time here describing this. God considers it just to repay those who persecute. They will be judged by Christ, coming in flaming fire with his mighty angels. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from God's presence. Paul doesn't mince any words here. He's, he's very vivid in his description of the day of the Lord and what this judgment looks like. Now, judgment's not a popular topic. I get that. Again, most of your non-Christian friends, assuming hopefully you have some, you know, that's not, that's not something that they really want to talk about. We don't tend to lead with that. I, I don't even know if we have a lot of hymns that talk about God's wrath or judgment. However, it's scriptural, so maybe we should. It's a, it's a topic most Christians would rather, you know, avoid because we know how most people feel, particularly with the, you know, the cultural trend now of judging being so faux pas. But God's judgment isn't a bug, it's a feature. Our God is just. Our God, he doesn't let wrongs go unrighted. Oh, oh, he's merciful. He is forgiving. He desires that all men should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is true, and it is also true that God punishes the wicked. Not only is his judgment right, but it's comforting to those who are suffering. Can you imagine telling somebody who lost their job or got disowned by their family because of their faith, or had a loved one put in prison, or even killed because of their faith in Christ, can you imagine telling them that justice doesn't matter? I wouldn't say that to them. Justice does matter. Can you imagine telling them to just forget and move on? No, God, God is just at all times and in all places. And in a moral universe governed by a just God, sin wrongdoing will not be ignored justice will be satisfied and we can confidently say to one another when you suffer god will make it right one day god will grant you rest and relief in the end and paul says it'll be at the revelation of the lord jesus in fact that's how they know that they hadn't missed the second coming because if they had missed the second coming or if jesus had come back he would have already wet his sword and he would have already started his vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel. God will make it right one day. Take heart and be of good cheer. And so Paul tells us, Paul tells us that those who cause suffering and persecution are being proven worthy for judgment. 
In the same way that Christians are being proven worthy for the kingdom of God by God's supernatural act in their life in which they respond with faith and love and steadfastness completely contrary to our unsanctified nature. It's a work of God in our life proving that you're worthy of heaven. People who are doing their persecution are being proven worthy of judgment. That's the purpose for them. Do you remember the story of God making his covenant with Abraham or Abram actually at the time in Genesis chapter 15? One of the things he promised Abram is that his descendants would wander in a land not his own and be servants and they would suffer for 400 years. I mean, that's, that's, we, you know, we kind of focus on the really good things, but there was a very bitter beginning to that promise. Then God said he would bring them out of that land where they were suffering slaves with great possessions. And the fourth generation of Abram's descendants would come back to the very place where they're cutting a covenant right now and Abram's asleep, and the animals are cut in half, and God, the epiphany, is passing between the pieces of the animals. They would come back to that very place for God's promises to be fulfilled. Well, why wait? 400 years suffering, fourth generation, why wait? Well, Scripture says, because the iniquity of the Amorites, the people who lived in the land right then, is not yet complete. That's what it said. The people who dwelled in the land, the pagan Canaanites, those who did not honor God at all, they rejected him, hadn't reached a tipping point yet where God would be just by displacing them and inflicting his vengeance on them. R.C. Sproul says, The Lord does not arbitrarily punish. He allows people to run themselves into hell, which makes his verdicts fitting. God doesn't just go around inflicting his wrath capriciously. He is measured, patient, it's, it's just. It's just. It's always just. We never must fear the concept of God's righteous judgment because it is just. He never makes a mistake. There's no need for an appeal or a check and balance because it is righteous and holy in all his judgments. And Paul here is reminding the people of God that the appearance of inaction by God, the appearance of inaction to grant relief from suffering and to judge the oppressors does not mean God is sleeping. God is patient. The persecution and the afflictions, they're working to make the people worthy for the kingdom, and they're serving to make the wicked worthy of hell. Third point, last one. Again, in the outline, number three, Paul prays for them. After outlining the purpose of afflictions and what it does in the life of a believer and also those who are being persecuted, he turns his attention to the content of a prayer found in verse 11 and 12. And I'll read it again. I'll grab my bulletin. He writes this, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the content of Paul's prayer. Sometimes when he writes letters, he just busts out in the prayer. Here he's just telling them what he's been praying for them. We have a great expectation that Paul's prayer comes true. He prays, though, that they would walk worthy of their calling. That is, that they would persevere. God has set a course for these saints that is difficult. It does include persecutions. It does include the ordinary trials of living in a fallen world that are very real. And Paul wants them to hold the course, to continue in faith and love, even though every sanctified instinct of their mind is saying, flee. 
forget this Jesus stuff or curse God and die. Again, maybe it's a strange thing to pray for because in some ways they've already proven themselves worthy of the kingdom by their perseverance thus far. But Paul doesn't take yesterday's success as predictive of tomorrow's outcome. He's also not calling their salvation into question, by the way. It's not how it works, though, in the Christian life. We don't ever arrive or get beyond a total continual reliance on God and his grace. There's always a real danger that we may fall off. Now, again, I'm not talking about ultimate perseverance here, okay? If you're trusting Christ, you will, you will persevere because he will persevere. This is not a theological point. This is a pastoral point. What I'm talking about is that a Christian may succumb to doubt or fear of the world or man or weariness or pain or, or even just falling away from fulfilling the good works that God has prepared for you. That's what Paul prays. He says, I hope those, you have a resolve to do those good works. I hope you do it. You want to be faithful to Christ in the midst of the difficulties? I pray that by God's grace, he fulfills that in you. There is a danger that we fall away from that good disposition of soul where we're full of trust and rest in God, even when life hurts. And so Paul, Paul uses the weapon he has, which is prayer. He lifts them up, and he asks that they may be worthy of the calling, worthy of the kingdom, and stand fast through whatever comes their way. We don't graduate from anything higher than this in our lives. This basic cry must always be ours. A.W. Pink, in commenting on this passage, he wrote, about himself, that he often prayed and cried to God the content of Psalm 119, verse 117, which says this, Hold me up and I shall be safe. That was his prayer to God for himself. Hold me up and I shall be safe. He did this, he wrote, because the opposite of that is, leave me to myself and I shall perish. If we are left to ourselves, we will perish. We won't hold fast. But if God holds us up, we shall be safe even in the midst of trials and difficulties. May this be our prayer, and by God's grace, may the result be that Christ is glorified in us and we in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we thank you for this time of encouragement to set aside the cares of our daily life and come be renewed in your word and in your truth. I pray that these truths would go deep into our hearts, Lord, and that you would increase our faith and love for you and for one another. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.